Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dessa, and this is Deeply Human, why we do the things we do. And we are gathered here today to talk about love. We spend a lot of time trying to find it, but we might be better off trying to build it. Less swiping and more second dates. Can you hear me? Very well. Okay, I'm going to ask some questions about dating. If you could think of a character in a movie that would serve as a rough model for a good match for me, who would it be? Oh, my goodness. The first thing that comes to mind is Indiana Jones. <laughs> because of the adventurousness. I would totally date Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. I would totally. Of course you would. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got the physical thing. He's not afraid of getting dirty. He's swashbuckling. That's my mom. Sylvia. She's very professional in public and kind of goofy when it's just us. We talk on the phone most weeks, sharing little updates about our lives, comparing notes on the world around us. I happen to be on the dating market at the moment, and I've been thinking a lot lately about romantic matching, what it is that attracts people to one another and fixes them together. I still remember when my mom was dating after my parents divorced. She met her new husband through a personal ad, that was online dating when the internet was still made out of paper. In a previous era of American history, my mom might have been the person to set me up with a guy. But times have changed. Now we're dating online, which has seriously expanded the dating pool. And we're marrying later, which means we're treading water longer. The contemporary dater sifts through way more candidates to find her special somebody. And, as we'll learn... The numbers matter more than you might think. When you looked at me little, did you have any idea of the sort of partner that I'd end up with? Like, did you think about that, about me dating when I, when I was little? I think a parent always thinks that way. Mm. Even when I took a look at the four-year-old, this was a curious mind. And I think when I think about your dating, I can only imagine that it would be someone who would be equally curious. I think that being a physical person... The physical strength of the person you're with actually matters. What do you mean? Like like someone I can't win in an arm wrestling match? Yes. Someone who could pick you up and twirl you around. <laughs> okay, just for the record, I'm like 145 pounds and 5'10", so that narrows it down. <laughs> there are a lot of guys out there like that, though. Do you know what Tinder is? Do you know the app Tinder? Yes. Mm -hmm. Next time we have lunch, do you want to, like drive my Tinder app and you can swipe left or right and you can tell me 
Oh, sure, that would be kind of fun. <laughs> We're looking for a companion for chemistry, a partner for good times and for bad, for Netflix and for chilling, someone with whom we're really compatible. But what exactly is compatibility? And how much of it can we expect to find in a partner? Years ago, I was talking with my best friend Jacqueline about this stuff, and our exchange has haunted me ever since. She told me someone we both know was going through this big breakup. And Jacqueline asked him, what happened? And he told her he and his girl had really tried to make it work. He said, man, we were so close to being a fit. We were 90%, but we just couldn't do it. Not long afterwards, another friend of ours announced that he'd asked his girlfriend the big question, the one posed on bended knee. When Jacqueline asked him, ah, so how'd you know she was the one? He responded, we just fit. We match like 90% on everything. Two couples, both feeling 90% well-matched. And the exact same grade flunked one guy out of dating and landed the other in a second-ring suburb with two kids and a joint checking account. So how good is good enough? Like, How much can we ask for? What should we settle for? I spoke to someone who studies choice and decision-making to figure out exactly how people set their standards. Barry? Yeah? Do you mind if I call you Barry? Not at all. The expert, with whom we are now on a first-name basis, is Barry Schwartz, a professor of psychology at the Business School at the University of California, Berkeley. He's particularly interested in how you behave when you're in environments where you have a bunch of options, like the cereal aisle in the supermarket, say, or... You know, Tinder. Intuitively, most of us are likely to think, hey, more options to choose from means I'll be more likely to get just what I'm looking for. But as Barry explains in his book, The Paradox of Choice, that's not always the case. Most Western industrial societies believe that since freedom is good and choice is essential to freedom, that choice is good, and that the more choice people have, the more freedom they have, and the better off they are. Choice is good, but there can be too much of a good thing. And when you give people too much of a good thing, instead of being liberated by it, they get paralyzed. They can't pull the trigger. Think of your local grocery store with dozens and dozens of cereals on offer. Barry says that the process of sifting through so many options can actually make us less satisfied with whatever we put in our carts. His thinking goes like this. While we're comparing all the potential choices, we're making note of the best features of every option. Oh, hey. This box of Frosted Puff whatevers is on sale. Oh, but this one is organic. Oh, but this one has so much niacin. I love niacin. At the end of the process, nothing can compare to the super breakfast you've collaged in your imagination by combining the best bits of each box. So, even if you do end up making a pretty good selection, you just don't feel that good. And this isn't just about cereal. This applies to big life choices, too. One of the things we have to fight against is adaptation. Barry's been studying this stuff for 45 years. 
you have good experiences and they're wonderful, they're spectacular for a while, and then they just become your life. And as normal keeps going up, experiences that are really going to knock your socks off have to keep going up too. The socks stay on and I don't know what you can do to get somebody's socks off. So maybe the problem is that I've dated too many great guys. It's weird to say it, but I don't think that's a ridiculous idea. I've been lucky enough to know and love some awesome dudes. And I've sometimes wondered, if I'd been forced to marry one of them, could we have made a go of it? I bet we could have pulled off a workable partnership. But of course, workable isn't really the standard we're going for these days, is it? We want to lose our socks. We want socklessness. Barry is quick to point out there's very little empirical evidence on this, but still... I can't for the life of me see why having uh, 200 cereals to choose from in the grocery is any different from having 200 romantic partners to choose from on a dating site. It seems to me that all the problems that having all these options present in the retail domain, they present perhaps even to a greater degree in the uh, romantic domain because the stakes are so much higher. Barry told me about a pretty interesting study on dating choice as it played out in the world of speed dating. If you're unfamiliar, speed dating started in the late 90s, and it goes like this. An organizer gathers a bunch of people in a room to set them up on tiny dates, only a few minutes long. A bell rings to indicate when you're supposed to move on to your next date and the next. And at the end of the night, you submit a little sheet of paper to the organizers to indicate who you'd like to see again. If they also pick you, then you're set up for a real date at normal speed. What's interesting is how the number and range of potential daters in the room can affect the number of matches. A 2011 article in a publication called Biology Letters reported findings from a study of 84 speed dating groups. Researchers discovered that the daters who had a wider variety of people to choose from picked fewer people they'd want to see again. And when they had a lot of really varied choices they were more likely to pick no one at all. And arguably, this is because with everybody you see, you know, oh, this person's pretty nice, but that other person was funnier, and that other person was a little bit better looking, and that other person seemed to be a better listener. And so every attractive feature of everybody reduces the attractiveness of everybody else. Confession time. I tried speed dating once. I liked a guy with a pink dress shirt who did not indicate liking me back. If you're listening now, pink shirt guy, this is the glamorous podcasting life you could have been a part of. One of the most fascinating recent revelations about love and dating comes from the work of Dr. Helen Fisher, a researcher, a writer, and a public figure who spent much of her career studying how we make romantic choices. Here's the study I read that blew my mind. Dr. Fisher recruited a bunch of people who were passionately in love and put each of them into an fMRI machine. While inside, each participant was shown a picture of the person they loved and pictures of somebody else as a control image. The machine tracked brain activity throughout the session, and at the end of her research, Helen was confident that she'd identified exactly which parts of the human brain are involved in romantic love. I've actually seen these regions modeled in 3D, even hopped in an fMRI machine myself to have my own brain scanned. And let me tell you, love is not pretty. It's a curving set of knobby, mangled, sort of claw-like things clenched 
deep inside the darkness of our skulls. Nobody gets out of love alive. I mean, we're trying to win life's greatest prize, which is Mm. a mating partner. Helen talks with her hands. She is inexhaustibly excited about what she does. I had thought that the hardest thing I would do with my career would be to figure out the brain circuitry of romantic love and attachment. But as it turns out, it's actually not. The question was, why do you fall for him or her? Why are you drawn to a particular person? And um, there's all kinds of cultural reasons. I mean, we tend to fall in love with somebody from the same socioeconomic background, same general level of intelligence, same general level of good looks, same religious and social values, same reproductive goals, same economic goals. Your childhood certainly plays a role. Yeah. Timing is important. Absolutely. Proximity is important. And I would say at my age, lighting can help, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I began to think to myself, well, maybe basic biology can pull you naturally towards one person rather than another. There's four basic brain systems that each one of them is linked with a constellation of personality traits, Mm -hmm. the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen system. I'm going to slow our roll here because this part's important. Those four substances Helen mentioned, dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen, they're in all of our bodies, and they act on systems in our brain, affecting the way we feel, learn, think, and act. Helen started studying the available research about how a person's temperament is, to some extent, shaped by these four brain systems. People who are testosterone-dominant, for example, may be more prone to skepticism. People who are serotonin-dominant tend to be more religious. Estrogen people may be more verbal, and dopamine-dominant people are more novelty-seeking. Helen wanted to know, Are there dating patterns that emerge between these four types? How are they attracted to one another? First, she set about designing a questionnaire that could allow her to categorize daters into their biological types. I collected all the data from hormone studies and neurotransmitter studies and medical and biological studies to make the questionnaire. And then I went on to do two brain scanning studies to prove that this questionnaire actually measures what it does. She also linked up with Match.com and Chemistry.com, big online dating sites, which gave her access to a huge number of active daters. The users agreed to take her temperament questionnaire, and then they set about matching and dating each other. And she took note of who linked up with whom. More than 14 million people in 40 countries have taken Helen's questionnaire. I recently joined their ranks, answering her 56 questions on one of those agree-disagree scales. I find unpredictable situations exhilarating. Um, yes. Agree. Taking care of my possessions is a high priority for me. I drop my phone every time I stand up. That's a strong disagree. I think consistent routines keep life orderly and relaxing. No, not so much. My answers classify me as driven by the estrogen system. According to Helen, people like me... Verbal, social, inclined towards monogamy, conflict-diverse. Like to date, testosterone people. Logical, confident, skeptics. Oh, come on. Really? That's just... Oh, hell, that is totally true. (laughs) However, the serotonin camp, planners who value tradition, prefer to date within their own ranks. As do the novelty and adventure-seeking dopamine folks who presumably take their candle at dinners on the wing of a plane, toasting Chardonnay cut with Red Bull. 
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, going back to Barry Schwartz, our choice expert. He says there are two distinct approaches that people might use to guide their choosing. There are some people who, whenever they have a choice to make, they want the best. We call people like this maximizers. There are other people who are not so concerned about the best. We call these people satisficers, and it's a term that was coined by a psychologist named Herb Simon half a century ago. The thing about being a satisficer is you don't have to examine every option. You examine options until you find one that meets your standards, then you stop looking, and you are satisfied with what you've gotten. Maximizers want to make sure to score the best possible option. This is the friend who will tour a thousand apartments before signing a lease. Satisficers, meanwhile, have a specific standard in mind. They want a two-bedroom and a hardwood floor is a closet big enough to record a podcast in. And as soon as she finds a place that meets those requirements, she's ready to move in. Satisficers aren't necessarily less choosy. They might have a lot of boxes to check. But generally, it's the maximizers who find themselves spending a lot of time and energy on their deliberations. Intuitively, most people think you should make the little decisions as a satisficer. Like, hey, this works, I'll take it. And the big decisions as a maximizer. I'm going to spend the time and energy on this to find the very best. But Barry says... They're wrong. You know, by the time you find your romantic partner, you'll be in your mid-50s. And uh, that's not the right way to go through life. In addition to which... Since we're talking about romantic relationships, there's a huge mistake, I think, that people make, which is that the challenge when you're seeking a romantic partner is one of discovery. Find the right person. And I don't think it's really about discovery. I think it's about creation. You find a compatible person and then you build a great relationship. It's worth noting here. And Barry agrees that we don't have to partner at all. Life has some other pretty great prizes. But Barry has a point. If we do want to find a companion, 
It'd be nice to find that person while we've got a lot of time left to pal around together. I know that you're married. For 52 years, as of three days ago. Hey, I'm late with the happy anniversary. So, how did Barry meet his wife, Myrna? Through some hyper-rational decision matrix? Well, so, uh, she's probably going to be mad at me for revealing all this stuff, but we became best friends in eighth grade. And I was romantically interested in her from the get-go, and she was not romantically interested in me. And it took a lot of persistence on my part to get her to change her mind. When you were doing that, are you using methods of satisficers or maximizers? (laughs) I was 15 years old. Give me a break. I don't know what the hell I was doing. As to where I ought to be looking for my partner, Barry is not impressed by the app I happen to be using. You are way, way too good to be needing to use Tinder, let me say. <laughs> I'll take it. I'm going to put that, you know what I'm going to do? If it's cool with you, You want my Barry, endorsement? <laughs> Barry, can I put that on my Tinder account? Yeah. I'm doing it for but real. If you think it'll help? I don't know. I think it's funny. I asked Helen Fisher, our expert on love and brain systems, who, we should point out, still does work for Match.com, if there are any best practices for online dating. The brain is not well built to go through a hundred different choices. Mm -hmm. There's a sweet spot in the brain between five and nine. And after that, you just end up choosing nobody. So if you're on a dating site, after you've met nine people, stop and get to know at least one person better. Think of reasons to say yes. No. No. Okay, all no's so far. So far, we've had one yes okay, that's right. and like six or seven no's. Remember how at the beginning I asked my mom if she wanted to drive my Tinder account? Well, here she is behind the wheel. Uh, he doesn't look adventurous enough. And can you tell that from his expression or from what he's wearing or what? He's in an office. We're in an office. I know, but I know we're adventurous. <laughs> hmm. This is not a guy who I would have paused on, but I think you should swipe right because, yep. (laughs) Okay. It's a match. Do you know what that means, Mom? That his dad is swiping from his Tinder account (laughs) and he swiped right on me too. (laughs) I admit that watching my parents divorce has probably made me a little gun shy. They're both kind, sensitive people, and it hurt to see them so damn sad which made it seem all the more important to choose my own match carefully. But I don't want to set a standard for compatibility so high that it's impossible to meet, or worse, makes me an ungenerous partner, always disappointed with her guy. So Barry's idea that compatibility isn't only something you find, it's something you create, is compelling. How good is good enough isn't a question to retire after you swipe right or even after you like it and put a ring on it. How good can this get can be asked every day when deciding who makes the pre-dawn pot of coffee, how the bills are paid, how the compliments are paid, when to relent, when to insist on a difficult conversation instead of turning off the light to fall asleep alone in the same bed. I bet there are many potential relationships that any two people could build together. Their decisions in the first morning they spend together reverberate through the afternoon, 
The decisions of their youth shape the partnership of later years. Choice is not a lever we pull once. It's a wheel that's always turning. Okay, here is my revised Tinder profile. Dessa, 39. Design features, 510. Musician and writer, half Puerto Rican, 60% water. I like science and milk chocolate and kindness. And I'm looking for a charismatic, smart, trustworthy dude who's mostly but not completely grown up. I am officially endorsed by Dr. Barry Schwartz. (laughs) Okay, so Deeply Human kicks off with a bang. Big ideas about love. It's not just who you pick, but what you make together. So if you're expecting to fall hard for someone, you might have to help dig the hole. So happy shoveling. In our next episode, the topic on deck is pain. We'll be delving into why we hurt, why some of us can't stop, and how pain might shape some of the most important parts of our lives. Deeply Human is a BBC World Service and American Public Media co-production with iHeartMedia. Until next time, curiously yours, Dessa.